Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. We were the first magazine in America to put a black woman on the cover. We were the first publication to say we are pro-choice. That's non-negotiable for us. This week's guest is the editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine in the US, Samantha Barry. Samantha has worked at RTE, that's the Irish broadcaster, ABC Australia, BBC World, and she served as CNN's head of social media. Sam, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, not too bad. Listen, Sam, you have had the most wonderful career. Uh, now, jump in if I get any of this wrong, but you started off in RT News Talk and News Talk. Uh, you did a stint in Papua New Guinea with the Australian Broadcast Corporation. You then moved to London to work for the BBC. Then you went to CNN here in the US. And now you're editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine. Can you entertain our audience as to how you got there? I think it's a very zigzag. I think when they announced that I was taking this job at Glamour, right, big media job, you know, big female-focused brand, been around for 80-plus years, only, you know, six or seven editors before me. I think some people were like, wait, who? I had zigzagged my way from radio to TV to social and all the way, like, I mean, at the core of it was storytelling, which was super important, but I was always very open to what the medium was. So for me, kind of getting to drill into women's stories at Glamour, where I look at it as a media brand, not a print magazine, but a media brand. And we could talk about the changes I made there. It was an obvious trajectory for me, but for other people, I think they were like, wait, this is, for other people, it was a testament to the changes to our industry, right? I think when I walked into a newsroom in RT, when I was, you know, doing overnights on 2FM at like, you do the 12 o'clock in the morning to six o'clock in the morning shift, there was a very clear trajectory of what you would do, right? You'd graduate to the mornings, you would do some reporting, they would start you on the fluffier stories, maybe the like science fair or something and then you would graduate and you would do your time and you'd graduate and you would be either you would go down the reporter route or you would go down the editor route and you kind of could see what the trajectory of your next 10-15 years looks like. I think that has changed so dramatically in the last 20 years, 10 years in particular and for me to be able to go from radio to do it, uh, working for Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Papua New Guinea, working really with a lot of radio journalists to then going to BBC World News, which was a fav- amazing squad that was there with, at the time, that was TV producing, but doing a lot of social and digital, and then going over to a newer job at CNN, which was head of social media, kind of crazy new. It was, I did it for the, I ran a team, a global team, Hong Kong, London, New York, Atlanta, Washington, for the 2016 election and the first year of Trump's presidency. And then to go into women's media, I don't know, it is a bit of a zigzag. It's not It's not an obvious progression, no? What's extraordinary about your, I mean, there are so many extraordinary things, but what's really extraordinary is how you jumped from broadcast, lots of broadcast, into a, what was a print magazine without very much print experience. No, from what that I was a bit scary. Yeah, I didn't really. I mean, it was it was hilarious when the stories came out and it was like, no previous publishing experience. And the person that was my... um 
editor in University College Cork for the paper was like, wait a second, you do have publishing experience. You were the entertainment editor of the University Examiner. So how dare they? Uh, yes, it was new. It was new. Um, it was a different type. I had to learn pretty quickly how to put a magazine together. And it's interesting because I had come from a world where it was a quick it was a decision that had to happen in the minute for something that would be tweeted out or Facebooked or socialized. And I would have to make split second decisions. And then I went to a magazine environment where you're planning four months out and five months out and you see a piece of copy nine, 10 times and it's doing a circle. It comes back to you about nine or 10 times. And that hadn't been a world I'd lived in, in the news world before where it's quick done, like let's get it up, let's get it out. To, that was that was different for me. I had to learn a lot. But what I did learn that I liked was, I think sometimes in the news world, in the broadcast world that I had lived in, I always felt I'd given so much to stories, but they were literally up for like a minute on air and then they were forgotten about. So at, at least at Glamour, if I was giving my heart and my love and my efforts and the team was getting behind the story, it could be something that would live for a longer period of time and something that we were we allowed ourselves the space and time to do. And I think one of the first examples of that for me when I walked in the door at Glamour was Larry Nassau was um, on trial. And mm. I had put a lot of TV screens in my office from a broadcast background. You're used to having five or six <laughs> screens up in your office. Not something that happened in publishing necessarily. I think there was a lot of art and beautiful things on the walls. And I was like whack a load of tellies up there I need to see <laughs> four different things at one time Larry Nassau came out and uh it was Larry Nassau was the gymnast um doctor that was on trial for sexually assaulting and abusing countless um young gymnasts and it was a really gripping trial and I remember my I had been taught in all of the work I'd done previously to be like hit it this is what's happening today this is what's happening now this is what's happening and I realized Glamour is not going to break through on that noise, but we can do something really special for the survivors of Larry Nassau. So as the case went on day by day, we started collecting the, trans, um, the transcription of what every girl and woman that had got up on that, um, had got up on court, talked about their experience and said, and by the end of the three weeks, we had this, you know, this, you know, this account, this is, these are the words of the survivors of Larry Nassau. This is the bravery that they showed. And that was, I think, the first example for me, a glamour of like, you don't need to hit the news moment and break something. You can sit back and be like, what, what's going to really make a difference through a lens that I can tell it? Um, so that was a bit of a change for us. We're also like, I think, you know, glamour. I know, you know, I I made the decision to stop monthly print. It just didn't make yeah sense for us anymore. And I look at us as a media title. We're doing documentaries and events and you know digital covers we're doing all these things i really do see us as a media title or brand or whatever um the language you want to use is but we're more than just a magazine exactly and i think what's really important obviously you know in my eyes sam you were so you were so kind of ahead of the curve in terms of the digital landscape and social and you just really got it from the get go i re i remember that from the bbc but what what's also really striking about you and your career is that the journalism seems to be as important to you now as it was back then as well like that seems to be a really really integral part of your editorship at glamour yeah, I mean, the, the journalism and the story is the heart of everything I do. I think, you know, I think number one, you know, I, I think the thread that carries me through 
all of my jobs in media has been the core of it is storytelling. And as an Irish person, I think if you're not a good storytelling. You might, it doesn't matter how good looking you are. If you're not a good storyteller, like something happened. And so that's core, but the journalism is really important to me. And I think I've learned also how to tell stories that really matter to me. And I always got excited, even BBC or CNN, if it was a story that I cared about, I was always the one that was shouting at the 9am meeting going like, this is, we need to do this. Um, and so I get, I'm in the very privileged place where now I get to shout at people to be like, these are the stories we're doing. I really care about this. Yeah. The journalism really matters to me. Um, yeah. And I, I see what I do. Yeah, exactly. And again, kind of backtracking in your career, you spent 18 months, I think it was, in Papua New Guinea. And, you know, Papua New Guinea is a tough old place to operate in. I personally haven't been there, but I've set up films there, actually. Mm. And, you know, it's it's dangerous. Um, how was that time for you? But also, I was like 26. I thought I was invincible. Obviously, now I'm just like, what were you doing? Going to, I remember... My mom, my parents live in a farm in West Cork, and at the time they did, they weren't big internet Wi-Fi people, so they really couldn't Google. And I called them, and I was like, "I'm going to Papua New Guinea to do a project for Australian Broadcasting Corporation." And my mom was like, "That's great, Australian, well, the Australian broadcast. That's amazing." She was like, "What's Papua New Guinea like?" And I was like, "Oh, tropical islands life. PNG is a very. It was one of the Port Moresby itself is one of the most dangerous cities in the world." But I learned a lot about myself as a journalist and what I could do and how I could be stretched. I went over to work on a radio project. So when I arrived, radio was king in PNG. So it was a country that literacy levels aren't super high and nobody really had TVs at the time. We're talking about 2000 and, 2008. And um, so nobody. And so I went to work on with 13 different radio stations, all the stuff I'd learned at RTE in Ireland and News Talk, another radio station in Ireland. I was taken, I was bringing to Papua New Guinea. I was going to teach these young journalists how to do a radio package and how to get like an interview with somebody in a market and do all the things. But when I arrived, so did dumb phones, right? So they weren't like, so like mobile phones that there was very limited access to the internet. Digicel arrived at the same time I did and it changed everything I was doing. So what started as a radio project really quickly Everyone was like, how do I get on Facebook, which was new at the time. I want to get on Facebook. I was like, okay, well, why don't I get every radio station up on Facebook? And that started. And then when everybody had phones, they used to have this really rudimentary way of like requests would come in. Somebody would write something. They would put it in a mailbox outside the station manager's office. And that's how requests went into the radio station. But I had lived in Irish radio through people sending text messages to the radio station. So I was like, okay, well, I've, we've all got phones now. Why don't I go buy a SIM card for each station? And that's the text number you keep reading out on air. I remember the first night we did it, we had like 200 text messages and the station manager was like, what is this? I was like, they've been waiting to talk to you. They've been waiting to have a conversation with you. And so that was really at the core of, especially when I'm talking about social and digital and storytelling that is two-way I do think that time in Papua New Guinea really, really was like a clarifying moment for me that media was meant to be a communication, not a, um, not just a preaching, you know, passive engagement for people. Like people were meant to engage with, reply, you know, comment, share. And so it really, I think Papua New Guinea really changed my whole career because it would have been very easy 
to stay in that trajectory of like, okay, well, I'm going to do this now. And then I want to be a news editor. I want to be a correspondent. And what that opened me up to was when I did go to the BBC to work as a television producer, I was really fascinated by, what do we do with Facebook? What are we going to do? Can I go on air and talk about what's happening with the Pope's election? How this is the first social media Pope, ele- like this, a Pope being chosen when social media was in play, you know, whenever anything was happening, I think we were jumping in on like, well, let's just how the world is reacting to it. So I think Papua New Guinea set me up for that. Yeah, well, well, I mean, it's so interesting. And I'm sure at the time there was probably a bit of backlash, um, you know, from more traditional journalists and saying, I'm not, you know, I'm not logging onto the Twitter or, or, or whatever it was. I'm sure you had a lot of people to convince, especially the BBC to, you know, to say this is actually quite important and and this is the future. Well, do you know what? The funniest thing is that I always thought like, and I've I've used this tactic a lot. I remember being BBC and it was like all the journalists, especially the anchors were on Twitter and they didn't want, they were like, no, I don't want to do any more social media. And I remember, I think it was Stephen Sacker. And I was like, will you just do this Facebook live with me? And we did one and it went like everybody was engaging. And the soon, I mean, they're, com- they're a competitive bunch anchors and talent and like the people in front of the camera. So once they saw another person do they were like wait I want to I want to try that Facebook thing can I try that Facebook thing so sometimes you just got to get one or two people on your bus and then everybody else is on board like so when I went to CNN Wolf Blitzer is one of the nicest people in media like honestly and immediately at CNN like we were doing stuff and I was like Wolf will you be a sticker online or Wolf can you do this thing for Snapchat he would do it in a heartbeat. And the second that like one anchor would do it, then they'd be all like, wait, wait, I want to do the Snapchat show. I want to do this. So, I mean, there's ways you can get people on board if they if they want to. A few early adopters. And then, yeah, as you say, they're, they're a competitive bunch. And you also spend time in Iraq, in Kurdistan, as far as I recall, Sam, in Erbil. Isn't that right? Yeah, I did some time. So I, I worked on a couple of projects one was with, so one was at the BBC and it was in and out of Myanmar and Burma. One was um, in Pakistan. And then the other was I, I did, you know, every now and again for the State Department at the time, the U.S. State Department, they were doing these like what they call tech camps. And they would have people it was very much a soft power play for them. And it was, you know, they bring trainers into the local, you know, embassy and you would train these journalists on, you know, whatever tech and journalism. And I at the time was obviously getting to know and kind of getting a reputation as somebody that could teach people social journalism or how to use Facebook for news gathering or how to tell a story on whatever platform it is. So I actually saw a lot of the world doing that. And it was really interesting to figure out what was happening in different countries. And I always, I think I was always blown away with either in Iraq or Burma or Pakistan. I would come in and I would help them tell stories, but these are, in a lot of these countries, massively underpaid journalists that put their lives at risk every day and day in, day out, they just, the, the journalism is what drives them. And that always kind of, it always impressed me because, you know, I'd go into somewhere for like two or three weeks or even like two months at a time and work with these people and people are like, oh, that's great. I can't believe you're doing that. When the reality is the like the people that should be getting the accolades and the praise are the local journalists who live that life every single day. And with Glamour, you know, people might look at the brand and think beauty and fashion. And, and you know, that is absolutely something Glamour covers. But it is a really, you know, it is an, an amazing brand. I, I think back in the day, it, the, the slogan 
or the caption was for, for the woman with a job back in the or 90s. the girl 40s. with a job in the 40s. In the, girl, in the 40s, I mean, exactly. In the 40s. I mean, that's progressive, eh? And that's, that's yeah. you know, that's you, isn't it? I look, I think, look, one of the most pleasurable things when I started this job is digging into the archive and the history of glamour, right? So it's been around since 1939. Yes, absolutely do. We talk about fashion and beauty 100%. But we also was the fir- we were the first magazine in America to put a black woman on the cover. We were the first publication to say we are pro-choice. That's non-negotiable for us. We were back in the early 40s when I look at those covers and the tagline was for the girl with a job like the core of what who glamour appeals to is working women um we also you know if you look at the history of what especially Ruth Whitney and if you're interested in media figures to really dig into what she did as an editor you need know, to have to take your hat off because she was amazing if you have any interest in media figures like look at what she did we did a lot of coverage of Roe v Wade still really care about conversations around women's reproductive rights. And, you know, we talked about domestic violence before anybody else did. Um, And women in politics has always been something we care about, no matter what side of the aisle you are. We are, we we love champion women making changes. Let me move on, Sam. Is there a moment in your wonderful career so far that you can take a step back and say, gosh, I'm really proud of what I achieved there? Honestly, there's been so many of them. Like, I think I've always been, this is going to sound a bit earnest, but super proud of everywhere I've worked. So, like, I remember even though it was like 12 o'clock at night and I was walking into the broadcast in RTE, I just was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I work at the Irish Broadcaster. I'm so lucky. I remember, you know, walk, like, when I walked into the doors at BBC where we work, like, you're in this building and you're like, I... I the BBC, I work at the BBC, like I'm so proud of it. Everywhere, same with CNN, same with Condé. So I think there is these moments in every stage of my career, whether I was the overnight intern to the editor-in-chief, I've been so proud of the places that I work and the people I work with. Because in our industry, you surround yourself with amazing creative journalists. And I think that is always a pinch me moment. I do think, I'm just trying to think, I think for me, one of the biggest in this current role that in at Glamour, one of the biggest moments for me every year that I'm just like, I can't believe I helped pull this off was is Glamour Women's Year. So it's a huge event. It's a massive undertaking. It's months in the planning. And then when you get there and I walk out usually at the start of the night and I just am looking at a room full of some of the most amazing creative creative women and fantastic change makers in the world. I'm like, I got to host this. So that's, I think for the last couple of years, women of the year have been huge moments. I think at CNN, it was any big debate, debate or convention that I was, you know, I had my teams that I was there. You felt like you were part of history. I remember the first bit, um, debate I ever went to in Vegas. I'd never, for CNN, I'd never been to Vegas, first of all. And to go to Vegas for a huge debate with the CNN machine and be part of that is, I mean, it's an experience. So I remember being at the Vegas debates and being like, wow, this is this is a moment I, I will be telling my kids about. That's brilliant. Well, actually, that that, that kind of leads on nicely to my next uh, question. If you could pinpoint a rather bizarre experience that you had in your career, and I'm kind of egging you on to tell us about a certain interview you conducted in um, the men's bathroom. Oh, I know. So at CNN, I know, right. So at CNN, I think it was a little bit. CNN started 
ran quite a large team toward the end of it, built the amazing team. And it was people from, you know, Mashable and Storyful and Sky News and built a team of the, the best social journalists in the world. And I'm, I, I think they're amazing. And um, so we had started off at each debate doing something special for social. So in the Vegas debates, we had these Instagram cinemagraphs portraits that they actually ended up using all over TV, all the TV coverage. It was when the shadow went across their face. So we did that. I remember with each that. Of them. Yeah. yeah. We, um, we did that with each of them. And then we, we go, and I think it's the second round and we were like, okay, let's do something special for Snapchat. Let's do Snapchat interviews. We were, we'd launched CNN on Snapchat at that stage. We wanted to do special, something special. We'd got all the Dems, we'd gone to Flint, Michigan. We'd got the, all the Democrats that were in the race. It was Bernie and Hillary and Martin, o- Martin O'Malley, Martin O'Malley. And then there was a couple of others. Um, we got all them for Snapchat and we had to obviously for balance of fairness, get all the Republicans. So the Republican debate was in Miami. We get there and always we'd been able to do anything social in a space backstage. And we get to Miami, it's the university of Miami that we were um, hosting the debate. And at this stage, there's probably about seven Republicans still left in the, the race. Um, for the Republican nominee, including the current president, Donald Trump. And we got there and the head of security at CNN and the head of Secret Service that were over the event pulled me aside and they were like, you can't, you can't set up what you're trying to do here backstage. And I was like, okay, well, I need to do it because otherwise it's just Democrats on Snapchat and we got to get the Republicans. And about five minutes later, they came back to me and they were like, we found a place. It's a couple of minutes from stage. And myself and... Ashley Codiani, who um, w- was my number two at CNN, I went on to being the number one. She um, kind of walked and they were like, walked, walked a couple of minutes from backstage and they were like, we found a place for you to do it. And they just pointed the men's toilets. And I just didn't even blink. And I was like, okay, I just need a black screen and I need my cameraman and I, whatever. So ended up all the Republicans, including the current president, I interviewed for Snapchat in the men's toilet after they came off stage but at the time as as i'm sure you have been in situations like this you just don't even blink you're just like oh this is where i can do it okay you just go and then when you're out the back of it you're like did i just interview donald trump in a toilet that's a brilliant story sam and and and, and i know you have a ton of them yourself myself did a panel uh probably a year ago now geez and you had some very, very funny story about one of your first days in some type of meeting where I can't remember if you were doing the front cover and you didn't really understand what was going on. But Oh, yeah, money. Yes. Oh, so listen, I one of the things before I walked in the door at Glamour and, you know, something I probably learned more in my 30s than I knew in my 20s is how much financial independence and financial and figuring out money and finances and investment and negotiations it is uh, for me it's the ultimate feminist issue because we earn less and we you know we live longer and um we save less and we invest less so like money's always been something especially in the last couple of years that I really cared about and I've been really got much better at negotiating for myself but money's always I think you know front and center and some of the coverage that we do in the financial coverage but I remember walking in the door at Glamour and it was my first it was my first day and my assistant turned around and was like, you got to go do a run through on the 38th floor of World Trade Center. And I was like, what? What's a run through? And my assistant, who obviously worked in publishing and magazines for a long time, was like, who is this person? 
that is our editor. She doesn't know what a run through is. What a run through is made, I suppose, infamous and famous in Devil Wears Prada is when the creative director, the photographers, the stylist, everybody behind a shoot, and sometimes it's often the cover, comes in with racks of clothes and they're trying to pick the looks for the cover. What goes with what? Like, what do you want on a cover? So this was January and we were picking the look for a cover that was about to be shot, I think, the next day. And it was the April cover. And I went up to 38th floor and I'm looking amongst the sea of like, I don't know, there must be 10 or 12 people in that room. And there was racks and racks of clothes. And it was a cover we were shooting and they were, you know, ultimately the editor in chief gets to pick what the look looks like. And I was like, I have never been in this situation before. So I asked the question. The only question I knew how to ask was when they brought out this, and I can't remember, was it like a Valentino or a Gucci or something look? And they held it up and they were like, we think this goes with what we're trying to get across in this cover. And I just was like, how much is it? And the faces went blank. And I was like, what? I was like, how much does it cost? And they, it was obviously kind of a newer question that they hadn't gotten a run through. And I was like, I had done enough research on Glamour. I know how much money the Glamour reader earns. I know how much she spends on clothes. I understand the different types of Glamour readers out there. And I was like, I just, I'm just trying to understand, is this like her big one luxury budget spend on style this year I was like but how much is it and then for then I challenged the team for my first fully made issue to make everything in it for fashion to be less than $500 when you work in a fashion building like that is you're asking a lot of them because they love like they love design and luxury how much was that outfit then that that they were proposing um you put on the front cover it was definitely a couple of thousand Really, that's so funny. It's so Irish of you as well, Sam. Because you're like, eh, can we not just get a rack from pennies? The funny, yeah. The funniest thing about it for for months afterwards, and they still know it now. They know when they come into me that I need to know the prices of everything. For months afterwards, we'd be doing run-throughs, and we'd be the only magazine in the building that, like, the the fashion team would come in and they would have a post-it note of the cost of every single piece that they would bring into me, and it became obviously known in the industry so much so that a, a fashion house gifted me something like a couple of things I think I was about three months in they sent me some clothes which is a lovely perk of the job and as a joke they put a post yellow post-it on everything that they sent me and told me how much they were because it was obviously known that I was asking the price of everything in, in, in each and every run through but that's just so indicative of you isn't it it's um you know you have you have a mission um you're you've kind of you're trying for money not to be a taboo subject among women, but but it really is, isn't it? Like nobody talks about salaries and you're trying to break down those barriers um, just so we can all get equal pay. And um, no, I think I think it's brilliant, but that that's a brilliant, that's a really, really funny story. Um, and I can just imagine you in that room. Before I let you go, l- looking at the state of journalism now, we've all, of course, pushed towards digital journalism. Yeah. What kind of, could you predict the future um, in the next, three years like where on earth are we going to be have you any advice for you know aspiring journalists especially okay for well a couple of things so where's the future of journalism I think what's been interesting for me to watch because I lived we lived through it all is the move away and I'm really happy the move away from clickbait mass scale audience to super loyal valuable brand you know aware media consumers so I like to think one of the things I really care about at Glamour is like loyal I call them high worth um, audiences it doesn't mean that they have loads and loads of money it means they're high worth because they watch two videos 
and three times a month they'll share something from our social and they'll also deep dive into a cover that I think I have liked to see that in the world that we've lived in especially in the digital world of journalism that title and brand and quality matter so that's been lovely to watch and I think we will continue people whether it's the books that you buy or the things that you subscribe to or the music you listen to, or the things that you share, or the things you say, say in WhatsApp, I think people are much more conscious consumers that whatever they're sharing is a reflection of who they are as a person. So brand and title is more important than ever. Um, I think for young journalists, I think, you know, you've never been as lucky that you have all these places to publish without me or you ever employing them yet. So like, what I mean by that is when I was in college, like you have to go in to a media company in order to get a byline, a podcast, a TV show. You have the ability earlier in your career to really show things you care about and publish on Medium or do a podcast or get something going. One of the things that I look at, first of all, one of the first things I look at when young journalists come through the door is have they shown me through their digital trail that they really are interested in what they're interested. They come into me and say, I really care about women in politics. Like, am I seeing breadcrumbs of that all over the internet of what they've done? Because if I'm not, I feel like it's disingenuous because they have all these places. I want you arguing on Twitter about the state of whatever. I want you publishing maybe like a, an Instagram on, let's say you're really interested in food, culture and food and the intersection of that. Like, do you have an Instagram account that shows me that? So I think that's really important how you self-publish what digital footprint you put out there even before you, you get a job. I think number two, your job does not define you. I've never been defined by the perimeters of my job. I've always, as have you, like pushed further past the boundaries of what we, our job description probably should allows us to do and done more and thought bigger. And then um, third of all, it's not it's not a straight line. And you may have, you know, rejections. I, you know, just did a documentary. Actually, I started in RT. I did. We just did a documentary for RT, and it's based on Glamour Women of the Year and me. And in the documentary, I talk about the fact that for three years I worked at RT freelance, which means you do, like freelance. And I worked every hour that God gave me, and twice I went for a staff job, and twice. The place that I worked day in, day out, rejected me and never made me staff. And at the time, I was devastated. But you know what? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. So don't get, you know, don't get um, don't get disparaged by those knocks in life. Because 15 years later, RT is doing a whole hour documentary on the person that they twice refused to make staff. That is serendipity for you, Sam. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for, for coming Thank on today. You. It's such a pleasure to chat to you as always. And hopefully we, we'll, we'll catch up uh, when you get back to New York. Definitely. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 